Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever hour you're turning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Rost, and I'll be your guide to explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from our Missouri. Today's episode continues our multi-part series on the Ozarks. Sure, you think you know about the Ozarks, the home of Branson, the Bald Numbers, and the Beverly Hillbillies, right? Well, in this series, we'll talk about the Ozarks, a region covering roughly half of Missouri as a cultural identity as well as a physical place. So, come along for a trip to the Ozarks. Our guest today is Caitlin McConnell, a seventh-generation Ozarker who began writing about the Ozarks while still in high school. Starting as a columnist for the Marshfield Mail, her research and writing on topics related to Webster County led to her selection as the History Channel's Student of the Year in 2007. Later, she served as the president of the Webster County Historical Society and authored a pictorial book on the history of Marshfield. Her most recent book, Passport to the Ozarks, was published in November 2019. Presently, Caitlin curates the website Ozarks Alive. Welcome to the Art Missouri Podcast, Caitlin. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Now, tell us a little bit about your personal and really family connections to the Ozarks. Yeah, so I'm really fortunate on one side of my family in particular, um, goes back pretty deep into the Ozarks, a couple of different places. But um, specifically, the one that's closest to my heart is into Webster County, where I actually grew up. I grew up in the same house that my great uh, my grandmother did, my great-great-grandmother built. And so at least seven, possibly eight generations of my family are from that area. And that's what really got me interested in Ozarks history to begin with. Um, Back when I was in high school, I read a book called Walkin' Preacher of the Ozarks by Guy Howard, who was an itinerant preacher. And he spoke about a lot of places that were um, not that far away from where I lived in Webster County and a time frame that I figured my ancestors probably could have related to a lot of the things he was talking about. And that just made things really real for me and just made me want to delve more into history and learn more about what life had been like in the past. Now, what is it about the Ozarks overall that finds so interesting in in the projects that you do in this research and writing overall? You know, I think that for me, it kind of goes back to that personal connection. You know, I've always enjoyed all, all history. You know, I read about lots of different things, but as far as actively sharing and promoting and caring about it, I think it's because of that connection, you know, and and, and to know that really um, things have evolved very rapidly in this part of the world. You know, I look back, like I said, to my grandmother's life and think about how much different it was than mine. It's amazing to see how much uh, different the Ozarks was even just a few generations ago. And I think that that inspires me to really try to capture what I can right now, because I see that there are people of her generation who are still around, but they're disappearing pretty quickly. And so I feel like it's almost a race against time to try and um, preserve those stories and traditions while they're still here. Now, tell us a little bit about the origins of kind of your well-known kind of larger project, Ozarks Alive. How did that come to be? (laughs) Yeah, so... um, you know, Ozarks Alive is kind of, it's a passion project, I guess, uh, for me, but it goes back a lot further than just 2015 when this actually started. Um, 
you know, it actually goes back to 2005 in a way, whenever I was a junior in high school and was given an amazing opportunity that I didn't really even grasp the significance of at the time, but I was allowed by the editor of the Marshfield Mail, which is the newspaper where I'm from, the chance to take over a column in the paper called Landmarks. And um, at the time, the Landmarks column was a place that a reporter would write about um, historic churches in the county, and they would feature a different church every week. And at the time, you know, I, I was kind of interested, started to be interested in local history. I just read um, Walk and Preacher of the Ozarks and thought that this would be a really cool opportunity to help learn about and share the region's history. And so, you know, I couldn't believe it when I went into the paper one day. I, you know, I told the editor I'd be willing to help with it because um, the person who'd been doing it before had left the paper. And I thought maybe there was an opportunity to get plugged in a little bit. And I was shocked when he was just like, hey, you, you just you take it. You can take it and do it. And so at 17, you know, I'm like, oh, my gosh, okay, I have to figure out how to do this. And um, I just remember that first story. It was this little church um, called Mission Homes. And I went out there and did the interview and wrote the story. And I had no idea at the time that this, that would lead to um, this, I, what I believe to be a lifelong interest and almost obsession with the area's culture and history. But um, I did that one, and that led to the next week and the next week, and eventually we expanded the column to do all historic sites in the county, um, which was just so much fun. You know, I would spend every Sunday uh, researching at the local history museum about things and then trying to go out and, in a lot of cases, just figure out where something had been. You know, I wrote a lot about defunct schools and churches and things from the past where there wasn't necessarily a roadmap to get to. And so that just, you know, this instilled in me, I think, this love of the treasure hunt that I mentioned. And um, that ultimately led to um, a great honor in, in my life. I still can't quite believe it, but when I was a senior in high school, I was chosen as the History Channel Student of the Year, um, my senior year for this column work. And that was, you know, it wasn't the high point for me, really. I mean, the high point was getting to do the stories, but it certainly was kind of um, a cool point in the timeline and um, I don't know uh, acknowledgement that this type of work is important and so that ultimately you know transitioned into my time um, in college where I went to school to be a journalist and um, kind of went on from there I, I ended up moving away for a while after college and I was just really honestly heartbroken while I was away one of the things I've always wanted to do is write about the Ozarks and I wasn't able to do that in the way I wanted to do from Norway and so I thought when I came back, you know, I just wanted to be able to do that. I didn't need to wait for a job or an opportunity given to me. And so I started Ozarks Alive. I didn't really have any expectations of what this would be other than I figured um, it would be a good excuse to be able to write and tell people uh, why they should tell me their stories and why um, I needed to be able to learn about different things. And, you know, I've been uh, very pleasantly surprised. I guess you could say over the past few years, because it really does seem like there's a hunger for these these stories and this type of information. Um, people, I think, love understanding more about where they're from and why the region is the way it is, even when there are negative things. You know, I don't think that everything about the Ozarks is positive. Um, that's one thing, you know, especially uh, I even think about a lot. You know, I don't want people to think that I assume everything about this area is perfect because there are lots of things we need to fix. But I think that 
when you can talk about the good things, it gives people an appreciation that otherwise they might not have um, for parts of the culture that even might be kind of laughed at sometimes. I mean, I hate when people use the word hillbilly in a derogatory nature, because as I've seen in my own life and seen, especially through research and meeting people, is that hillbillies were smart, capable, adapting people who had to make do in a world where it was not easy. And so being able to meet their grandchildren and great-grandchildren and see how their lives have been and share those stories has just been very inspiring for me. And I think it's something, like I said, that other people enjoy understanding and appreciating too. Now, when you kind of look at the project overall or really what you're writing there, how do you find these people and places and events that you're focusing on? Because, I mean, they're all very different in their own ways. How do you... How do you dig up these stories from the past? Well, you know, it kind of varies a little bit depending on the story. And one thing I I always kind of point out about Ozarks Alive, too, is while I do, you know, largely focus on things that have a um, historical or cultural tie, more of what I do is almost a snapshot of what life is like today. And so it's it's more of a time capsule, if you will, so that in the future, um, in addition to people being appreciative of what is going on today, it's something that people in the future can look back on and see what life was like in 2015, 16, 18, 19, you know, as, as time goes on. Um, but finding those stories is interesting. You know, there are a lot of things I find just driving around. That's one thing I, I love to do on weekends. You know, generally try to have an interview set up somewhere, but then I just explore the region around wherever that is and try to find stories just by um, wandering down back roads. And it's amazing that there have been a variety of stories that I found that way. Um, another way I find a lot is just through word of mouth. You know, I try um, to ask people uh, that I interview or even just people interested in the stories I publish, you know, what ideas do you have from your neck of the woods? Because those are the type of stories that I want to investigate. You know, I don't, I love writing about things that people know about, you know, those of course are good stories too, but it's even more inspiring and interesting to me to find the stories that you're not going to find with Google. You're not going to be able to find um, just by, you know, perusing Facebook. And and so that's what I want to do is find those stories that people don't already know about very much. Um, The third way I find a lot of stories though, is through simply looking through old newspapers and publications, you know, um, there are things, whether it's a specific business or person or whatever, who might've been written about years ago, that would be good to revisit. Or it just inspires me to think along those same lines for what are the parallels today. And so, you know, that's one thing. Um, microfilm is my friend, I guess you could say, because I use that very often in these stories. Now, in looking at these stories, obviously you have to have some favorites, right? I mean, you can love all the things that you're writing, but what are some ones that really connected with you or that you thought connected well with the audience? Uh, you know, it's interesting to see what people respond to. And I think that. You can always have the category of ghosts, legends, folklore, those things people are always really enthused to learn more about. And and so those are interesting for me because I like sharing stories people want to hear. They're also a little frustrating for me because one of the things I like the most about Ozarks Alive is the research and the puzzle piecing things together. Um, and with ghost stories, you can't do that quite as much as with some other ones where you can look up, you know, factual stuff in newspapers or books or whatever. Um, but that said, you know, in addition to, to that kind of general category, um, people do respond really well to history stories, you know, things about specific 
things that happened in the past or people in the past. Um, just in general, I think people have a hunger for that to kind of understand more about where they're from and who was here before them. Um, but also off of that, people like to learn about unique people who are around. I think that, you know, there's um, a couple of stories in particular that come to mind. One was about a lady who I found out about through word of mouth, um, but she was a lady who until just a few weeks ago still ran her own restaurant um, at the age of 91, I believe she was. And she was just this great story because everybody loved her. She was well-known in the community and she would run this restaurant and did all of her own cooking and cleaning and order taking and pie baking and all of this stuff. And, you know, she was interesting because she was um, a real person who people could identify with in a way or could identify someone they knew whom, you know, she reminded them of someone maybe in their community or whatever. And they just kind of loved the novelty of it as well. So those type of personal, personal personality profiles um, often are very well received. And then, like I said, history ones in general, you know, there's one I did a few weeks ago on the community of Carlin, which was um, a Czechoslovakian settlement out here a few miles north of Springfield um, in Polk County. And that was something that a lot of people said they hadn't heard of before. It was news to them, and they just really enjoyed being able to um, learn more about its origin and, and the place that it had in the greater Ozarks community. Yeah, when I was going through uh, Ozarks Alive, I think one of the ones that really struck me was the conversation about kind of one-room schoolhouses and the box supper, I think was something that connected oh, well yeah. because we have oral histories related to one-room schoolhouses, and that's always a, a conversation piece with the interviewee about, you know, tell us about box suppers, you know, what was that like? And, mm-hmm. you know, people often tell the story about how how that led to relationships and friendships and really helped invest in the community and the schoolhouse overall. Well, and one thing, you know, I've learned, um, I think it's more of an evolving revelation, really, through these stories is that I think more than anything that, that ties the Ozarks together is its traditions. You know, you look out in little communities and the people change, you know, people are born and live their lives and die. But the thing that can make them relate to one another is the traditions, whether it is those things like pie suppers or going to the community church or you know, shopping at the general store or knowing even just families for generations, those relationships in a way are a form of tradition. And so I think that that's something that has helped glue the Ozarks pieces together as time has gone on. And exactly, you know, you mentioned that pie supper. Um, that's exactly, you know, the type of thing I'm talking about too. And, and even in, in the, that particular case, you know, those events were always a little different from school to school but they were something that most people could understand and could bring back their own memories when they think of those. Before we return to our conversation, here's Danielle Griego with some information about upcoming events. On November 19th, join jazz historian Chuck Haddix at Cook Hall in the Center for Missouri Studies for a fascinating program entitled Early Bird, Charlie Parker's Life and Music in Kansas City. Haddix will share new information on Parker's time in Kansas City, giving fresh insight into his formative years as a man and musician and will feature previously unknown photos, newspaper coverage, manuscripts, and recordings that illustrate the emerging genius of Charlie Bird Parker, one of the most influential musicians of all time. Share your love of Missouri with items from the State Historical Society's bookstore. Whether it is an indulgence for yourself or the perfect present for that hard-to-shop-for person, the Ron and Patty Richard Bookstore at the Center for Missouri Studies offers books, art, note cards, and other gifts that highlights your state's heritage. 
Remember, Historical Society members receive a 10% discount on select merchandise. Plus, by shopping at the Society, you help support our mission to preserve and share Missouri history. On November 16th, the Center for Missouri Studies will host a pop-up event where Peggy Jean's Pies will be selling a variety of delicious mini tartlets. On December 7th, the bookstore will host a pop-up event where Sugarberry Blooms will be selling wreaths and evergreen bundles to deck the halls. Can't make it to our pop-ups? Don't forget the Historical Society's online bookstore at shop.shsmo.org. Now, something that's been recently published uh, was Ken Burns' documentary on country music. And for people who watch the documentary, there is a rather small segment in there uh, about a show in Springfield called Ozark Jubilee. Uh, now, if people were like me, they were intrigued about this Missouri-based kind of music program and why it perhaps didn't get more coverage in something uh, like the Ken Burns documentary. Uh, and one of the things I found was was your writings on it and really your kind of thoughts and, and recollections about the overall Jubilee. So could you tell us a little bit about its history in the Ozarks? Yeah, so we need probably a whole podcast to devote to all the details of it because it was a really um, in-depth and interesting initiative. But the top-level information is that the Ozark Jubilee was a television show um, that aired from Springfield. It was uh, filmed here in, I say filmed, it was actually broadcast live um, from Springfield for several years in the 1950s primarily and ended in 1960. But it was a huge deal at the time because it, um, made Springfield one of the leading producers of national television in the entire country, which you would, of course, wouldn't expect to have um, from here in Springfield, but that's how it was. And the show itself, to me, of course, like I said, historical research is my my uh, the thing I enjoy the most, really, about these things. And when I did that story about the Jubilee, I just had an excuse to to learn a lot about why the Jubilee happened the way that it did. And it wasn't an overnight accident by any means. Um, it actually took years of work through radio before that show even was able to become a reality. But it all started um, years and years before with a radio station called KWTO, and who really um, capitalized on using local talent, the local musicians who would come in and sing uh, what they, you know, what we would think of as hillbilly music, but um, very, you know, people, everyday people became celebrities through this because they were performers and then people would recognize their names and their songs. And this led to live shows that they would do where people would come and hear these people perform, which ultimately transformed into the Ozark Jubilee, which was, you know, what we would think of as kind of a musical variety show um, that actually a lot of very big name stars were on at different times. You know, you had Patsy Cline, uh, Brenda Lee was a, was a person who was, you know, here as a kid, Gene Autry, um, just lots of different people who were famous, you know, who really, um, at the, when it was during its heyday, made Springfield kind of a competitor to Nashville as far as country music. Um, there were so many stars that were coming through Springfield at that time. And um, it's just an amazing piece of history, really. It, it was fairly short-lived in the great scheme of things. Um, but people here in Springfield who lived here during that time are very familiar with it. It was, a, I would say, a very defining part of Springfield's history uh, when it was around. It's very interesting to think about. And, and did Remind me if I'm incorrect, but you would actually talk to some people who had been affiliated with the show as well when you were writing yeah, the episode? And, yes. Yeah, you had, um, a, you know, people, and I mean, even I think I did that story back in 2016, 2017, maybe. Um, 
and I'm, you know, the, unfortunately that generation is kind of disappearing as well. Cause you think about it, you had to be old enough to be on the show in the fifties, which there were children who were on it. So you had um, some younger people, but most of them would have been older teenagers, twenties, thirties, forties, et cetera. And so you have fewer people around to talk about it firsthand, but yeah, there were several people who could remember singing on it, who had been on the shows. Um, even one person I talked to had been, um, behind the scenes with camera work, I believe, and just talked about how it was this great initiative. You know, it was something new. It was kind of a new frontier. Nobody had worked in TV before. And so this was a thing that was a learning curve for everybody, I think, you know, just figuring out how it all worked together. When the show started, they couldn't even film it in Springfield because um, now I'm not an engineer, so I can't explain this exactly, but the the signal, it could come into Springfield, but couldn't go out. And so until they could um, get everything ready for it to work properly. They actually had to go to Columbia and do the shows from there for several weeks until things were ready to go here in town. Um, but this was just, a, it was a new time for everyone. And I'm sure a very exciting um, thing to feel that they were a part of. I mean, remember right now the, the bus trip that you mentioned. Yeah. The bus trip between Springfield and Columbia and back yes. in, in a day. <laughs> I can't even imagine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm sure it was pretty intense for a while. Uh, shifting gears a little bit, uh, tell us about your, your most recent book project, Passport to the Ozarks. Yeah, so, you know, Ozarks Alive um, has been around for about four and a half years now, approximately, and it's evolved a little bit over time um, initially, and it, it still does really focus on articles, but it has gone expanded beyond that in recent months, especially. And one of the projects I'm working on now is this book called Passport to the Ozarks. It's set to come out in just a few weeks, which will be early November at this point. Um, and it's a collection of 61 different places to visit throughout the Ozarks region. The majority of them in this case are in Missouri. There are a couple from Arkansas, but I'm largely focused on Missouri um, in this. And it's, it's a little bit of everything. You know, you've got restaurants you could go eat. You have historical sites of significance, um, just quirky kind of stores and different places out in the, the back country that hopefully um, would be of interest to people who like to get out and about and have a day trip different places. Um, there are photos in it. It's got, a, you know, short articles about each one. So it's just kind of a, a unique collection of different places that uh, I believe people would really enjoy visiting. Now, obviously, we want people to kind of read the book and check everything out. But for someone who might be wanting to get off I-44 and kind of get off the beaten path, what's someplace from that book that you'd recommend that they check out? Oh, geez, there are so many. Um, let me see. Uh, you know, one place um, who that I, I always love that encourage people to visit that's in there is this place called Topaz Mill, which is down in Douglas County. And the, the Topaz Mill um, is kind of, like a step back in time almost it's the privately owned mill it's not you know open specific hours it's a family that owns it but they let people come visit it and the unique part about topaz mill is that it's basically locked it was locked up after the mill closed and all the equipment different things that are still in it that um were in it when the mill was operational and so you can go in there and see the bins and the grinders and the machinery and even signage on the walls of what it looked like back then and i just am so um, impressed and touched really by this family that they're so enthused about sharing this, that they're willing to let visitors come and check it out for, uh, I believe it's for free and just come and um, experience what this was like in the past. And in addition to the mill, they actually still have the old store from when Topaz was a community as well. So you can kind of see both those things um, when you're down there. And that's just one example. You know, I have a different variety of different places too. There's some old stores. 
Uh, another place closer to Springfield is called uh, Turner Station Mercantile, that it's a, known as Greene County's oldest grocery store, and it's been operated, um, the store has been owned by the same family for six generations since the 1800s. And so places of those type of flavors is kind of um, what is, is filling the book's pages. Interesting. Now, that book's coming out early November, like you said. Uh, what are some other current projects you're working on with Ozarks Alive or even other book projects in the future? You know, it's interesting with the stories. After I find a topic about something, I kind of don't wait too long to jump in. And so with the stories, you know, those kind of evolve pretty quickly. But with larger things, um, I actually you mentioned the pie suppers. That's one thing um, I'm jumping into is I'm hosting an old-fashioned pie supper part of my effort with this was to host an event that maybe people had heard about from the past from the Ozarks, but hadn't had a chance to experience firsthand. And so we're going to have it at an old restored schoolhouse, try to make it as authentic as possible and um, encouraging people to bring pies. And we have an auctioneer who's going to auction them off and it's just going to be a lot of fun. So those type of things, you know, helping people connect with the past in different ways, is kind of my, my um, focus with something like that. I also do a variety of presentations, you know, throughout the area, and um, I'm looking for other opportunities, ways that we need to preserve history that might not be being done right now. Um, it's a very long-term project, but another thing is I uh, have kind of a old-time Ozarks music documentary that's in progress. I'm gradually doing interviews for, and um, there's no set timeline on when that will be done. It's kind of just fitting in when I can uh, get volunteer help to do the interviews, uh, but those are the type of things, you know, like I said in the beginning, just trying to capture and share things while we have the opportunity. And I think ultimately that's my goal um, with Ozarks Alive. And um, it's just a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. If you're interested in more of the people, places, culture, and history around our Missouri, please check out the State Historical Society of Missouri's website at shsmo.org. Thank you for listening to the R Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri.